Hello and welcome to the Just Get It. My name is Tyler Chisholm and I'm very excited for my guest this morning. Three-time Olympian, proud Calgarian, and arguably one of the most accomplished athletes in Canadian sports history. I'm happy to welcome Mr. Kyle Schufeld. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Tyler. Thanks for having me. It is an abs- absolute pleasure. Um, bright and early. Kyle's an early morning guy. I don't know if that is that a throwback from your training or are you, or are you just an early morning guy? <laughs> I just feel like if I get up in the morning, I get so much more done. So it's it's not a natural thing for me; it's a forced thing. Uh, yes, I hear you. I grew up uh, I grew up in a rural environment. I grew up on a farm, and it was literally like if pound pound on the door. That my dad had a very similar theory to you. Yeah. I think it was in his in his DNA, but whether it was in mine or not, it certainly got ingrained at a very very young age. And if you happen to stay out late, that really didn't affect it at all. <laughs> so curious, are you early to bed, early to rise, or do you, are you like what's what's sleep look like in your world? It's a random question right off the bat, but I'm curious. <laughs> So sleep for me, I need nine hours. That's kind of my, that's where I'm at, where I'm at optimal. So I try to go to bed around like 10, get up at seven ish. But I also am someone who sometimes gets inspired at nine o'clock to do a project and being an entrepreneur and being a business owner. Sometimes I will take that project on and then all of a sudden it's 1am and I'm like, oh man, it's one o'clock in the morning. How'd that happen? But I do find that if a couple days a week, I ensure that I'm up by like five thirty, six o'clock, I set the alarm and then I've got this thing. My wife thinks I'm really, really weird, but <laughs> my alarm will go off and I'll go, yes. And then I get out of bed. Then I find that so much better than going, oh, oh I don't want to get up. So I try to be like, yes. And then jump out of bed. <laughs> I could see I, I could see where that might seem slightly annoying. Is your wife a morning person or no? No, no. She needs like five cups of coffee and then she's a morning person. Uh, yeah. My, yeah, I think my wife, your wife, yeah, because like, I usually get up. I'm a little bit groggy, but after a few minutes, I get a bit hyper. But my wife wants to sleep, and but sometimes I want to I want to play. I want to joke. I want to – anyways, we'll talk about this. She's going to be rolling her eyes listening to this right now going, oh, Tyler, just get up, fine, but leave the room. Go somewhere else. Right? <laughs> I will say I try to set myself up for success knowing that – I'm not a, a natural morning person. So if I'm doing a workout, say at like six, six o'clock or seven o'clock, I'll get my, my gym clothes together in the bathroom, piled up. I have everything ready. I've got my breakfast kind of planned out so that I just take out all the decision making in the morning and I just have nice. to literally get out of bed, say yes and get it done. Make it as easy as possible. Remove the yeah, barriers, remove, exactly. the, remove, remove the friction. Yeah. Um, you touched on something and we're going to talk obviously as we do and, and they just get it. We like to talk about history and you know the story and how you got to where you are. But curious, I'm sure there's probably a lot of people maybe wondering, what are you doing now? You said, you know, as a business owner and entrepreneur, talk to me a little bit about what you're up to these days. So these days, my main gig is um, owning a gymnastics center here in Calgary. It's called Kyle Schufeld Gymnastics. So we opened that five and a half years ago. Congratulations. Yeah, dude. It's such a great space. It We teach. I get to teach handstands for a living. Um, <laughs> Quote of the day. I get yeah. to, it's a t-shirt. Right? But I've got an amazing team, an, an amazing office manager, a, 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 an incredible program director, a group of team leads that really take ownership of making the business great and aspiring to excellence. So I get to be like the one that fills the gaps and, and I get to kind of lead and, and inspire my team to try to be great. So that's, that's my main gig. And then I do um, a lot of little side hustles. So I've got um, my speaking and event hosting that I do. I'm working with CBC as gymnastic and trampoline events come up. So I do the world championships and the Olympic games I get to go to as a broadcaster. And um, I'm also very focused right now on finishing my book. I've been writing a book for gosh, 10 years, but finally this year I said, I'm getting it done. So in my bag here beside me, you can't see it, but I've got 26 chapters. I've got 72,000 words that I'm working through 
on the editing process. So that's a very, very big focus for me right now. That's fantastic. Writing a book and well, writing a book, opening a business, so many, I, I talk about your business for a quick second. I was chatting with a friend of mine who was, who knows you well and was kind of, he talked about what he really found. It, it's a non-performance oriented environment in terms of it's not competitive. I should, I should say. And I thought that was interesting knowing your background being obviously highly competitive, highly accomplished. It was curious. So the decision to, to build it that way versus maybe the other way. I'm someone who really trusts my gut. And when I was thinking about opening a gymnastic center, I didn't, the thought of opening a competitive gym and living that life every day again, I, I did that for 22 years of my life. It just didn't inspire me. But thinking of grassroots, thinking of gymnastics as, as the foundation, thinking about that six-year-old boy that I was when I was doing cartwheels around my living room and handstands against the wall and my mom put me into the gym, that's what made me feel motivated. And so as I developed the business plan and, and thought about what this was going to be and what my legacy was going to be here in the city, doing a grassroots facility just felt so right. And there's so many amazing competitive level gyms in this city. And I want to feed to them. I want to create the space. If I have a kid that walks in, in our doors, who's like short, flexible, strong, and can learn a back handspring in a minute, <laughs> I'm going to pass them on to one of my friends at another club. I can't serve them. I don't want to serve them. I, I want to be the place that's like gymnastics for fun, for fitness, and for fundamentals. And so that felt right. And so that's, that's, what, that's what I'm doing. And yes, it's complete opposite of what I did. But I also realized I was in the gym so often with myself, my coach, and maybe one other athlete. I wanted it, but not a lot of other kids did. So from a business perspective as well, that wasn't feasible. You know, That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. The recreational gymnastics is where you can create a business that is sustainable. And it's interesting. I think what you said about doing something almost just for the pure joy of it, the fun of it, the fundamentals. I've had family members, niece and nephew, that were both in competitive sports, both ice-related sports, and they loved it, but they went down the competitive path and it like it, it burned them right out the back door. And now they've moved into other sports. You know, they both they both um, doing something now just purely because they love it. And I see their fitness level, their confidence. They're getting into their mid-teens now. And now there's potential for scholarships, but it was almost as a side benefit. It wasn't the focus. And both sports that they love they both got injured doing them and they were never going to go to that they were where they were at it didn't the everyone was aware they weren't going to go there but at that environment at 12 years old they were just it just got beat right the joy got beat out of it well so, that happens in so many sports they happen i see it in hockey all the time the young boys who his parents put them in all the different training camps and all the you know trying to push to get to the right league. I've heard of kids who like parents fake their address so that they can get on the one team in a different community. At the end of the day, the Wayne Gretzkys and the Sidney Crosbys, they're going to find their way to the top because they love it, because they're driving the bus, and because they want to be great. Not because their parents want to be great, not because they're put in so many different um, off-ice trainings and this and that. The great ones, they're going to find their way to greatness. That doesn't mean that there's not value in competitive sport. There is so much value. I learned so much from it. But also in our society, I think we've placed so much value on the competitive side and being at the highest of levels that we've forgotten that grassroots level sport and foundation and physical literacy. That's just as important too for an active and healthy future. For someone who's going to be active in their 40s, they need to know how their body works. And that's something that you develop as a kid. 
I think the term physical literacy, it's a term I just heard recently from that same mutual friend of ours <laughs> who's chatting about it and he kind of then broke down what it was and it made so much sense. And I grew up in a rural environment, so everything was, it was a very physical, but then I meet friends that grew up in the city and they, they didn't even, they didn't necessarily, didn't have to cut their own lawn. They didn't have to, or in my world, that was just kind of, that was, that was part from the <laughs> you had to do it. That was banging yeah, on yeah, the door, right? It, it was, but there yeah. was lots of play, but everything was just set up in a physical type environment. And you took, of course you don't know any different. You take it for granted. But being in the city and having yourself as an example of cartwheeling through the house, where do you channel that? Maybe not wanting to go down the full competitive path. Right? And so that's what we hope that we can be. In my research, like 98% of kids will do gymnastics for a year or two. A large population fall off when they're 9 or 10 because they go into other sports. But what we see our place being is being that place where they can develop that strong foundation. Maybe we'll have an Olympic champion walk through our doors, but maybe that Olympic champion will be a snowboarder or a tennis player. I don't know, but I hope that we can contribute to them feeling confident in their ability physically to take on any challenge. It's such a building a proper foundation and mm-hmm. building it around play and joy and mm-hmm. just knowing your, knowing your own body, which and, is huge. And you know what, Tyler? It's funny because sometimes I question myself. I'm like, is there value? Like I'm taking, we do take people's money <laughs> to provide like a joyous, fun experience for their kids. And, and sometimes I'm like, well, we're not like, what if that kid doesn't learn their cartwheel? Well, you know what? That kid's cheeks are rosy. That kid had fun. They developed a strong relationship with their coach and their teammates. There's value in that. Intrinsic value. Is, yeah. Mm-hmm. How do you quantitative versus qualitative? Right? What's the age groups? What do you typically, who's, who's there? Who am I going to see on a Tuesday afternoon? <laughs> on a Tuesday afternoon. So our daytime programming is all geared towards kids so ages six and under kids that aren't in school so we call it our preschool program we do parented classes called parent and me and we do um gym kids so our gym kids are ages three to six so it it the classes are an under an hour and they're just going to be going around learning how to bounce on the trampoline learning how to hang and swing on the bar learning how to do a forward roll learning how to do a proper landing um learning some hand-eye coordination and each week is different themes so that's what you'd see in like the daytime and then in an evening evenings are where it's busier but it's quite magical because you'll have a parented class of two-year-old kids and their moms and dads walking around the gym and you'll have an adult class at the same time so we really have the full spectrum um school age kids adults and parented babies <laughs> all all doing the sport of gymnastics all together at the same time you ever sit back and just smile and just look at it i'm like every day maybe i do, I do. <laughs> you're That's, smiling right now and you're I'm, being I'm ear to ear right now yeah it's actually it's funny because i wrote in my book i wrote the last line and it was it's like the light at the end of the tunnel and it's about how that first day that i opened this gymnastics center and I looked over my computer screen into the gym and I could see all the kids smiling and I could hear the joy echoing off the walls. And I could see the coaches engaging with the students. And I thought, this is exactly how it's meant to be. And that's the last line in my book. And it just, it, it feels so right. It resonates so much with me when I'm just sitting there. Sometimes like, yeah, it's crazy and there's so much to do, but I'll close my <laughs> eyes and I'll yes, listen man. and I'll feel and I'm like, this is right. This is how it's meant to be. That's a fantastic. That, 
as, as business owners and, you know, being a business owner myself, it's so easy to get lost in it yeah. and get lost in the day to day. And the, 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 because no matter whether you're giving kids joy or doing marketing campaigns, there's details and there's steps to follow. So taking <laughs> and, those moments to right? find those, mo- those points is huge. And it's work and work isn't always fun. No, it's not, right? but yeah, it's, it's how, it's how well you do it. And, and it's, and it is the light at the end of the tunnel. So something I wanted to talk to you and not going back and going through your whole story, it's incredibly inspiring, but there's something I stumbled across uh, in, in doing some research and doing my, my pre-interview kind of chat, my digging on you. Um, I, I, I watched a TEDx talk that you did. Well, it's funny. I read your, a blog article where said one of your goals was to do a TED, a TED talk, and then I found the TEDx talk down the road. So that, was, that, that made me smile. But it was about the concept of perfectionism versus excellence. And I think it's a powerful topic. It resonated with me and certainly a lot of people I've chatted with and a topic that's, that's come up. I'd love to just get your perspective on it and then even talk about how it's evolved through the course of your career and maybe as you become aware of it and even now as a business owner, because I think as business owners, we wrestle with it as well. But I'd love to just start there at that concept and, and talk about how it's evolved over the course of, of your career. When I was a kid, naturally, I was a perfectionist. It's not something that was ingrained in me. It wasn't something that was forced upon me. It was in my natural, like my DNA is perfectionistic. I find it catches up to me now as a business owner. Sometimes I have to I have to keep myself in check because perfectionism and excellence are very similar, but there is a fine line between them. Perfectionism is where you obsess about the details, where you're restricted by it not being right and obsessed about that. Whereas excellence is like trying to bring out the best and allowing that extra little bit to maybe fall off the side. Sometimes perfectionism can make me do that extra last 1% way too many hours. Where it's a waste of my life and a waste of my time, it's where I start to judge myself to that point of it's just never going to be perfect. Even when I write my book, sometimes I have to let it go. It's just not, that line isn't going to be perfect. It doesn't exist. I'm never going to be happy with it because I'm going to read it tomorrow and it's not going to feel right and I'm going to obsess about it again. So from a young age, my hair had to be slicked to the side perfectly. My shirt had to be tucked in perfectly. Every turn, every landing, every toe point, everything had to be to this level of perfection and every school project had to be to perfection. I cried in grade seven when I had a 96.6% overall average and I was third on the honor roll because I wasn't first and I wasn't at a hundred percent. And I had to, something had to give. (laughs) And I remember breaking down in grade seven when I didn't complete this project to my perfectionistic like tendency or to my standard and I started seeing a sports psychologist. His name was Dr. Hap Davis. He's here in Calgary. Okay. And what he kind of brought to me was that, like, is the world going to really end if it's not perfect? Because I had convinced myself that it would, that I would be worthless, that my value would be of nothing, and that nobody would like me. And, and so he... And I worked on the story. We, we tell these stories to ourselves oh, that becomes man. that becomes so powerful. Right? But, but really, they're stories. <laughs> powerful and controlling. It starts uh, yes. to control you. And what I've found is that perfectionism actually makes you really f- afraid of failing. You don't give yourself that permission to fail because you're so afraid that everybody else around you is going to think that you're not worth it or worth anything. And so happened I came with uh, across this concept. He he's, he's started to develop it like the world's not going to end if it's not perfect. 
It really isn't. So I made the sign in my room and I would try to remind myself of that. And I went the total opposite end of that spectrum. So in grade eight, I was like, oh, I'm going to be a badass. I'm going to smoke. I'm going to drink. I'm going to smoke weed. I'm <laughs> Recoiled gonna, like, in the other direction. <laughs> oh my God. I'm not going to do any schoolwork. I'm not going to listen to my coach. All these things. I was totally, I tried on bad. I stole. I did all these things. And so I had to find the happy medium. How, how old were you? Grade eight. So what? Grade eight. I was 13 years old. And you're still, you're still competing. Still training, still competing. Olympics not was eighteen, so you're still four years away from that. Started yeah, that training. four or five years. Four or five years. Yeah. yeah, just trying to get context in the yeah. cycle of things. Totally. So you become, you got the leather jacket. You're the bad. You're the bad. You're, <laughs> right, you're, you're the right. bad. You become the badass guy. Right. Wearing the hoodie with the hood up. I'm like, Bleh. your headphones on. Don't talk to anybody. Look oh, down. <laughs> Pack of smokes in I your used pocket. To light all time. Everything on fire. Like, why? Why did I do these things? I don't know. But I was, <laughs> I was trying on bad. I was just trying to see how it felt to not be that perfect kid, the perfect son, the perfect gymnast, the perfect student. The perfect, all those things. So I did find my happy medium. And what that looked like for me was excellence. That word really resonated. It's like excellence. I can try to be great at something, but at a certain point I can, I can enough is good enough is okay. <laughs> you know, right. I'm not trying to be a loady. Like I'm not just hanging out at the Seven Eleven smoking a joint. Like I am, <laughs> right? Somehow I just have trouble picturing you in that oh, setting, but I hated being, I hated being high. I was like, ah, this isn't good. I got so paranoid. Um, but <laughs> I, um, excellence fit excellence resonated excellence felt right and excellence wasn't something i was afraid of whereas perfectionism was it was a scary thing because i just could never live up to that standard it's impossible to be perfect couldn't live with it couldn't live without it <laughs> exactly so, so i'm curious a question and, and just thinking about it you know because you, you, you told me you're a parent now mm-hmm. um what, were you, what how was that for your parents through that time because they had the i'm gonna say quote-unquote perfect kid and now all of a sudden they've got the hoodie kid or whatever i'm just yeah. I, don't, I don't know how to label that because maybe if i'm if i'm a parent and i'm listening and maybe maybe my kids are going through that transition now what any advice or any thoughts how did your poor your poor mom who couldn't deal with you before gymnastics is now dealing with oh, i thought i had the perfect kid right you know my mom is a saint and my dad is as well and my parents were just they were so committed and they they let me drive the bus they really did Hmm. and so my mom she she took matters into her hands she wrote me a letter and I remember in the letter she said if you want to hang out at 7-Eleven and do nothing do the thing do all those things yeah but that's not going to lead you anywhere but I have to let you experience that my parents never they never tried to like take control of it. That's power. That's they, powerful as a parent to do. Yeah, that. and my coach did the same. I wanted independence in my training, so he gave it to me, and I totally crashed and burned at my first meet because I for three months he let me like have control of my training plan. Well, yeah, give a thirteen-year-old control of their training plan. They're probably not going to take full <laughs> control of it, right? So even I, at that point, control you, control with no direction is still right? <laughs> rudderless. Exactly. So they let me crash and burn a little bit, and they had to. And as a parent, my daughter is going to be thirteen, and she's probably going to make some choices, and I'm going to have to let her make those choices. I'm going to be there for her when she falls. I'm going to be there to help pick up the pieces, but I'm going to let her have the experience. I'm not going to say, "Be careful, don't do that." I'm going to be like, "Okay, go do that. I'm here for you if it happens, but I want you to learn from it." So that's where my parents, I feel, made such great um, parenting choices. Was they let me fall, but they helped pick me up back again. They helped pick pick me up again, and and so did my coach. So any parent that's out there listening, you know, <laughs> kids are going to make bad choices. 
and you have to let them make those bad choices because that's where the learning is. You don't, you can't tell a tree, you can't tell a kid, don't climb that tree because you're going to fall out of it. You got to let the kid climb the tree and fall out of it. They got to break their arm in order to learn that that was a bad decision. So that I think is the hardest part. You can't bubble wrap kids. You got to let them experience the bad of life in order to understand what the good can be. That's powerful. We could st- we could stop right there, and it would be Done. it would be it would boom. The mic mic, 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 mic drop, literally <laughs> mic drop. So you're 13, 14. You went through the dark stages. Um, still training. Still f- felt you know. So obviously things got back on track clearly. Because yes, but I'm but I'm assuming perfectionist doesn't. Did, at that point, you came to terms with it, but I'm assuming you weren't. You're probably always a recovering perfectionist, always, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, a recovering perfectionist. It's always there. And I've learned to identify it. I think that's been the power. That's where I got the power back. Um, it's it, We all have a saboteur that lives inside of us. It's this yes, little voice, right? We've got the good voice and we've got the evil voice. And for me, my saboteur is the little perfectionist. And it's this little kid that sits on my shoulder with the perfectly slicked hair and a purple shirt and white shorts, standing there waiting to be like, do his routine and telling himself, it's got to be perfect. It's got to be that it's there no matter what I'm doing. And so I've learned to control it and to say to that little person sitting on my shoulder, you know what, buddy? You just do the best that you can do today and that's going to be enough because that's what success is. You know, John Wooden was an amazing basketball coach at UCLA and he said success is that inner sense of self-satisfaction. It's that peace of mind that you get when you've done the best you could to be the best you're capable of becoming. And you can't tell me what that looks like. My coach couldn't tell me what that looked like. My parent couldn't tell me what that looked like. But internally, I could feel what that is. And so I look for that voice inside. I do a quick check. I take a deep breath and I say, is this as good as I can do right now? Am I satisfied? Yes. Then let's move on. How much you said? Work, how long did you work with the sports psychologist through that through that journey? I still see him. I still Excellent. see him. Okay, That's not awesome. as much. Yeah. I see him probably once yearly, but I was seeing him every at least once a month, if not weekly, at that point, just working on techniques of how to like, you know, shift perspective and how to be someone that could be content and someone that can aim for excellence and not drive myself crazy with that perfectionistic tendency. I think that's an incredibly powerful lesson and we joke here all the time and so much what we do for our clients is you can't see the label when you're inside the bottle. <laughs> but I, yet I know so many people right? <laughs> that don't, that maybe hesitate or they're afraid or they think it has some stigma attached to it to get a coach, get a counselor, get someone to give you because you know all those things you talked about on your own, we stumble through but giving someone to go, hey, you ever think about it looking at it this way and just the possibility, uh, that's such a powerful and I think more and more than ever people are reaching out to get that support but there's still, I have a couple buddies like, ah, I don't, you know, I'll just figure it out i'm like yeah but it might take twice as long and there might be some really bad casualties along the way like <laughs> life's too short and too long get it good <laughs> sometimes when you figure it out on your own you're just actually digging the trench deeper you know you're just drinking, digging it deeper and get more comfortable in it where someone else can help lift you right out of it and look down and say is what you're doing helping you you know yeah. It, coaches are so powerful. I have a coach in my business life. You know, I work with a, um, one of my friends. His name's Pete Cheesebro, and he's got a company called Fibonacci Leadership. Oh, okay. And him and yeah, I I've, go, I've heard of those guys. Yep. Yeah. And we go for, for meetings, and he helps me through. And it's, it's having someone else give you a, a new perspective to try to look at it from. And all of a sudden, whoop, <laughs> your problems become very, very glaring in your face that you're your problems are your problems because you've made them your problems. 
Yes, we're constantly hallucinating, <laughs> yeah, right? making up stories. Yeah. So as you evolve, so Olympics first time in 2000, incredibly young. I think I read 18 when you went to the first Olympics. So again, how did this evolve throughout your, like over the years, did it just continually get less or did it go in waves in terms of being able to wrestle with that? You know, playing at such a competitively high level. I think I just got better tools to manage it and I got more okay. comfortable with what it looked like and I could kind of flick it off my shoulder when it started to appear. Um, Sydney in 2000 was my first Olympics. I was 18 years old, and I thought I knew everything about <laughs> the world of gymnastics and of sport. And at those games, I I was literally shaking in my boots when I was ready to compete. There's this green light that comes on the screen, uh, on the screen, and that means the judges are ready for you, and you've got 30 seconds to lift your arm and salute and start your routine. And when I was waiting for that green light to come on, I I can like go back to that moment right now. My my legs were shaking. The green light came on and I saluted the judge and I went on in my routine, but I was rushed and I was speeding through it and I felt like it was slow motion. But when I look back, it was so fast. And that's where experience comes into play. Right. And that's why I'm so happy I got that first Olympic opportunity. I think that's one of the big reasons why I was able to perform in Athens was because I, I knew that the Olympic pressure and the Olympic feel was different than any other meet you'd ever been in. And if I didn't have that prior four years, then Athens, I wouldn't have been able to stand so confidently and so firmly in my shoes, um, knowing that I was in control of that perfectionist inside of my head and that I, you know, it, it just constantly evolved and I learned from every experience that I had. Well, it's such a powerful lesson you said earlier about, you know, that perfectionist almost keeps you from doing things. The, the value of experience, like you, you took the, you, you put yourself out there, you took the risk, but you weren't that hard won experience. You're not going to get reading books about it or even working with a coach about it. You stood there in front of the judges in that moment. The second time around, it's like, well, I've been here before. And, you know, I, 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 I didn't die. Everything worked out. Okay. I can do it again. <laughs> I always equate it to when you're driving somewhere for the very first time. Now we have Google and they can, we have a voice that directs us there, but like, it's unfamiliar. You don't know where you're going. You don't know where the right turn is or the left turn. You turn, you, you turn the radio down so right? you can focus oh on where you're God. going. Seriously, my dad used to do that. I was like, what are you doing? Now I totally do it all the time. <laughs> Even when I'm finding parking spots, I'm like, gotta turn I know, the radio I laugh, down. I laugh at myself. I'm like, gotta focus, gotta concentrate, gotta seriously, be in the moment. <laughs> we're getting to be old, man. But like, that oh, is the yeah, value yeah. Of, of familiarity and going through it. Like that first time, you're gonna make the failures. You're gonna make the wrong turn. You gotta turn the radio down because you gotta be super hyper focused on what you're doing. But the next time you go to that exact same place, even coming here today, the next time I, if I come to your office again, I'm going to know exactly where I'm going to park and what roads I need to turn on. So that to me is the value of experience is that it gives you familiarity and comfort in knowing what's going to be coming at you. And, and I love comfort. I live in it. That's that's a power, yeah. but willing to put yourself out there the first time to get to that, and it's you scary. have to yeah you have to earn yeah. it essentially. Absolutely, I had a friend of mine, and she was a uh, she was actually um, I think the first she was the first salesperson of the year I think in North America for Xerox who was a woman, so she was an emerge nurse who went into sales. So she's like I'm not scared of anything, but she she's become a sales trainer. She's an interesting lady. Uh, Alice Wheaton is her name, and uh, really really cool lady. She said something to me years ago that I've always played with. If you show me a perfectionist, I'll show you a procrastinator. <laughs> it's the first time I'd ever heard that you laugh. <laughs> I've just, well, it's almost there. It's almost there. She goes, ah, you're just, you're just scared to commit to get anything done because you put this like, oh, it's not perfect. So therefore you accomplish nothing. It always resonated with me and I keep playing it in my head. Like that was probably 10 years ago. She said that just listen to you talk today. That's the ultimate really where you're not only the, the self uh, beating yourself up literally, but the missing out on experiences. 
You know. I, I think a lot of perfectionists, I, I see this in, in gymnasts, young gymnasts all the time, is they're actually afraid to even like start something or try something new because they've already, in their mind, convinced themselves that it's not going to be perfect. And it's not, and it's going to, right? Yeah. So we talk ourselves out of it. We totally, t- before and, we even And we start, rob ourselves of the experience. Right. And I can do that sometimes of like, you know, running scenarios in my head and the scenarios often 10 times, sometimes have negative endings. And I had a coach said to me once, she goes, you know how much you're actually like, you're losing out on actually having that experience by creating a scenario in your head that just to be honest is completely made up in your head. <laughs> I'm like, hmm, okay, it's kind of been working, but you're totally right. right? <laughs> grumble, 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 look at, grumble, look at the floor. When you're working with children, I'm curious, when does, when do you find that, that, that inner dialogue starts to come into play? Like you're four, you're five years old. Is it there? Does it come later? Like when you say young gymnast, what's the, when do you see it shift? You work with children every day in that environment. I feel like around nine or 10 is when it starts to shift in the mind. That, that sense of like your awareness of all the things around you and that gymnastics is a judge sport and that there's people who are going to determine your value and your worth or your score. And so, you know, when you're seven, eight years old, you're like, you're just doing it because it's fun, man. Doing flips is awesome and you get to learn all these new cool (laughs) tricks. But then, yeah, around like nine, nine years old is when you start to conceptualize that you have, you have a bit of power in this and that, the more you do, the better you get, and you've got, um, yeah, I, I think nine is kind of when... It starts the to, there starts to become a correlation between this equals that versus I'm just having fun, like just being in pure joy. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I just want to learn this new trick. But now you're like, I got to learn this new trick, and I got to make sure it's really, really perfect when I do it. <laughs> so that's, that's about when the shift happens. So around, and I think from what I've seen... In young female gymnasts, it's ingrained a little bit more. Because, really? Interesting. Yeah, a little bit more because they're, it's perceived that their timeline is shorter. So they, you know, young female gymnasts used to around 16 would be their peak. Now you're seeing it more in their late teens, early 20s. Ellie Black is the best female gymnast Canada has ever produced. And she's in her early 20s now and she keeps getting better. And so she's really changing that dialogue and changing that conversation. Um, but... I do feel that a lot of um, young female gymnasts are quite controlled by the coach because the coach feels that there has to be like this timeline, like they've got to have all their skills. I didn't realize there was such a, so there's a construct already kind of pre-existing that they're now, they're kind of interjecting themselves into. And I think that's When you're 16, when you're too old, it's mind boggling. Two old guys sitting here here chatting, that's mind blowing. But I I do feel that the sport is shifting a little bit in that way where um, young female gymnasts can kind of like develop their skills, go through puberty, their body can change, then they can get their like their their strength back. P- gymnastics is such an evil sport where you can like do so much when you're a kid. You can be learning skills so easily. Everything is so awesome. And then your body starts to change. You grow six inches in a month and you're like, whoa, and your center of gravity is off and you lose everything. It's, it's just so, the odds are so stacked against you that you can get through that, that when you do, all of a sudden everything becomes awesome and easy again. Right. But, <laughs> but you got to get through that transition. You, and it's like, it's like the race car driver jumping into a brand new car and going, okay, right. go, out the, go out on the track. Like yeah. do those corners you did before in that completely different car. Right. Exactly. I never thought exactly. of that, but yeah, your body changes so much, but your mind is like, I could do this three months ago. What's going on? Right. That must be so hard mentally to, 
to, cause once you've accomplished something mentally, there's just, I can do that again. Like that power, that experience from before. I, I always never tell, broke it down that way. I always tell young men, especially cause 15, about like 13 to 16 is such a hard, that's the hardest time. I'm like, if you can get through till you're 17, if you can just show up and do the work and do everything that you can, by the time you're 17, all of a sudden you're going to feel like it's easy again, but there's going to be that muddy period and you got to survive. It's literally like a game of survivor. You got to get through that period. And then 17, it starts to get better. And then you look in the mirror and you're like, Oh, <laughs> I've got, I've got some muscles now. All right. Th- things are coming together right. and things then it starts to go back the other way. Yeah. And you take all that training and all that mindset and then put it all together. Exactly. So for you, 18, like sounds like you were just through that when you, when you went to your first yeah. Olympics, I still look at pictures. I'm like, Oh man, my arms are so skinny. Like I was such a baby. I was a little, I was, a, I was like a little kid, you know? Um, but then I look at pictures from Athens in 2004 and I was like, so my focus was so different. I was so much more confident in my ability and my sense of belonging. And four years at that point in your life, that's a significant percentage in terms of time, in terms of training and competing constantly. And it wasn't just one Olympics, then wait and go to the next one. You're constantly competing all around, all around, all around the world. Mm -hmm. So 2004, obviously the pinnacle for you in terms of at the, at the Olympics, I read something that really blew me away. 11 months before 2008, you broke both your legs. Yes. Yes. My, my last Olympics in um, Beijing, 11 months before I was at the world championships and it was in our third training, the third day of training. And I did this really big element. It's called an Arabian double front layout. So you take off going backwards. You do a half turn in the air. And then you do a double front flip, two flips in the straight body position. And I came into the floor with my heels going in first. And my knees both hyperextended and bent the wrong way. And both of my tibias fractured in that landing. And, uh, man, I... It, it's uh, visceral. It comes back into me. I can feel it shuddering up my spine. My chin slammed into my chest. And like in that moment, pain was not even in my spectrum of feeling. Like it was beyond that. Right. <laughs> I can't even, I can't yeah. even imagine. <laughs> it was, it was intense. But what it did was it really brought me back to like being the dreamer that like being that little kid that wanted to be an Olympian. Um, I had, reached my pinnacle in 2004 and I had struggled after that moment to find motivation again. It was a bit different. It was like, I loved being the, the underdog. I loved chasing. I loved having that goal right in front of me and like going for it. But I felt for so many years after I was like running up the set of stairs, looking behind me and having all these people chase and grab at my heels. And I didn't, I didn't like that feeling. I didn't like that feeling of like have being chased. I liked being the one who was in pursuit of it. You know, it, I could have equated to being in like a, a bike race and I, I want, I don't want to lead the pack. I wanted to be in the back in the chase pack. And then at the end, be the one who like pushes forward and goes and takes over the leader. Like that's, that's where I derive motivation. I don't like looking back and seeing everybody chase me. That's so funny. I was watching uh, Netflix has this form, uh, the special on formula one. And I was like, I was dead, dead relaxing last night. I put it on just to see. And there was a coach that had taken over the McLaren team and they'd had done really poorly the last five years. And he goes, I could have gone with one of the leading teams, but there's only one way to go. He goes, I was going with the team that I knew had it and I wanted to make the climb because I didn't want to have everyone chase me. I want to chase them. It's exactly, I was like, I'm kind of in my note. I'm like, 
hmm, I like your style. I like this guy. I like his style. It's kind of exactly, he said, there's nowhere to go but down when you're at the top versus right. the other way. It's an interesting psychology to be essentially your whole career focusing on that moment. And then now, like you said, um, now you're watching over your shoulder. And you realize how much is, like how much rides on it. <laughs> you know, your, your, your entire team's funding rides on you winning medals at the world championships because that's the system. I mean, like, if you if you do well then your team does well and so there just became so much external like factors in it so when i did break my legs it was like it all came back to the grass like to the bottom you know that foundation i had to rebuild it up again and so i was doing gymnastics again for me i was doing gymnastics because i loved it i didn't have to try to make that comeback like i could have been done i broke my legs i'm done right but my, i remember my mom asking me i had to move back into my parents house and i was like in a wheelchair with my legs sitting out in front of me and i couldn't do anything for myself and my mom was like why do you want to come back like why are you putting yourself through this and i was like because i cannot live with the regret if i don't try like, I, I have to try. I can't, for the rest of my life, look back and say, I ended there. I need to give it everything. And that was such a cool place to be as an athlete. Like, to be in that place of wanting to give it your everything and to try to uncover a new stone every day. And at the end of the night, what I tried to look for was, like, that inner sense of just satisfaction, like I've talked about before here. Like, having the cheerleaders inside of your mind at the end of the night going, you did it. You did everything you could today. Like, that was such a cool feeling. And um, coming back from that injury, I just had so much more appreciation and gratitude. I was so thankful for everyone around me that was trying to help me get there. And when you're maybe in your, like, Olympic champion mode, you don't really notice all the people around you and what they're sacrificing to try to get you to the top. So I just was on a different level of appreciation and gratitude. It was a very cool experience. When I stood in the corner of the floor in Beijing after I did qualify to compete there, I remember being very focused on my routine, but also being just so freaking thankful for everything around me. Such an interesting, you know, I've often heard it said or maybe experienced it that life will serve you up what you need at that moment. And sometimes it's a left hook (laughs) (laughs) or two, or maybe two breaking legs. And and why, uh, you know, to go from that position of kind of being, you know, not feeling where you're just changing it to putting you right back to like climbing the ladder again, which is clearly in your DNA. (laughs) I think a lot of the times we take for granted where we're at and we get caught up in like the minutia of like (laughs) all the things I have to get done. And um, I think sometimes it's really important to just like look around and say, look at what I have. Like, look where I get to be. Look what I get to do. Like, this is really amazing. And that, that just gives you a deeper sense of appreciation. And I think it makes you work differently. I agree. And I, I find, you know, listening to you talk, when you're always striving for better, it's really easy to overlook today. Because, mm-hmm. well, yeah, but tomorrow I'm going to do this and I'm going to improve. And yeah, this is, you know, be, hap- be happy where you know where you are, but know there's always room to improve. That's the mantra I tried in mindset because I can get into that and like, yeah, yeah, okay, that's great. Yeah, we got that. Let's, what's next? What's next? It doesn't give you that appreciation. And I, I do believe it also takes the toll on the people around you. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really respect the environment. And like you said, team, I'm no different. R- rowing the boat by ourselves as business owners, is, it's lonely and kind of almost pointless. Mm-hmm. And if you're like that way out in the front, it can really leave people in your wake. And it's just not, it's just not the right way to do it. I love the comic. And I always bring this up to my, my staff at, at our gymnastics center. The leader is not the one who's sitting on the chariot 
telling everyone to pull. The leader's the one who's in the front, who's doing the work, and who's like motivating that team to try to be greater, to to try to be better. Um, that that when I close my eyes, that flashes in when I think of leadership. Always. Was that a transition for you? Because obviously gymnastics, you were part of a team, but it's still very individual in in the sense that you were out there versus playing a team a team sport. Getting into a business environment was that a big, was that a shift for you and a mindset, or was that something that yeah, you're smiling? Yeah, I'm curious because it's a very like one man on the floor at a time versus now you're in a team. And how did that change for you? Or how did you? When did it hit you? I think the very first day that uh, <laughs> we opened for business, and I realized that I wasn't going to be coaching every class. I wasn't going to be answering every phone call. I wasn't going to be replying to every email. And believe you me, at first I tried to do it all. (laughs) I I believe you. (laughs) And what it did is it drove everybody around me crazy. And I remember my office manager at the time, she was with us for the first five years. She said, Kyle, you have to let go and you have to trust me. I got this. And it was like, okay. (laughs) So I had to take baby steps back. You know, and so I had to come up with my leadership style and I'm someone that needs to be, I, I, I need a bit of control, but I just need you to tell me where you're at. I need, cause I'm thinking yeah. of every moving part. I've got every browser in my mind is open. I'm thinking of everything at all times. And so that can make your computer pretty hot when you've got every <laughs> browser tab running. You wear your battery down pretty right? quick too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So what I've learned, and I'm continually evolving as a business owner, but to trust the people around me and to trust that if they need something, they can come to me and I can help get them through it. And also that I'm not going to know everything and I need to surround myself with people that are better than me. I, I don't. I know how to do the bookkeeping. I know how to do all that, but I don't want to do it. It's not my strength set. So I hire out a bookkeeper. I hire out out an accountant. I'm hiring out marketing people. I'm hiring out design people because they're better at it than me. I'm, I am not good at all of those things and I can't be good at all those things at the same time. What are my strengths? I have to ask myself that question as a business owner. What, what value do I bring to this business and where does my attention need to be? And, uh, and like you said, that that evolves over time. Those jokes when you start a business, like have a good lawyer and have a good accountant. Mm-hmm. What they don't keep going is have a good office manager, have a good team. Like it's all true. Like because if not, it's almost nearly impossible to, to move things ahead. So jump back a little bit. So business owner now, what 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 was the transition like to going from sport and basically that was your full time job to transitioning into you know was it we woke up one day and I'm going to start a business or what was it? Cause I think 2010 was the sports hall of fame, Canadian sports hall of fame. And then, then, then the business talk to me a little bit about that transition. So when you finish sport, I think it's different for everyone. Okay. I was, I was very lucky. I got to decide on my terms. I know so many athletes that get injured and then that's the end of their career. So after the Beijing Olympics, I knew internally that that was going to be my very last competition. I just knew it in the 11 months uh, going through the rehab. And so the day that we were done, I didn't move forward to the finals. I was ninth on vault and 11th on floor and the top eight moved forward to the finals. So I just knew I, I, I can't describe how I knew, but I just did inside. It was like, I can't, tra- I'm not, I'm not going to train another day. And, um, right at that moment. So when you didn't move forward, was that relief, disappointment, or just a sense of calm? It was everything all in one. Okay. I was shattered that I didn't make it to finals. Cause I really believed that I had the goods to do it. It was relief that like, 
you know, it's done because <laughs> the Olympic pressure is huge and the stress of it. Um, it was a lot of gratitude for like the career that I got to have. And it was a lot of fear, like what's coming next. And then there was joy too. I was like, all right, I'm at the Olympics. I'm done. Let's party. Let's have fun. And I got an opportunity with CBC to start my broadcasting career right there. As soon as I was done, Scott Moore was the president of CBC sports at the time. And he invited me into his office and he said, Hey Kyle, have you ever thought of doing commentary? I was like, yeah, it's something I've actually really thought about. And he's like, would you want to, would you want to do it? And I'm like, yes. He's like, starting tomorrow? I'm like, yes. <laughs> How about now? Yes. And so he reminded me that there would be a million people on uh, watching and that it was live and I couldn't swear. And I was like, okay, I got that. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a really, it was really hard when I got home. I had split up with my longtime partner. Um, she and I had a house together and we had split before the games because it was just so intense. Um, the, the single-minded focus and so I got home and I was like by myself in this new condo and I had no furniture and I was like okay what do I do now That's, that sounds like a nice setup for lonely and depressed <laughs> seriously and it just started to go down but on the outside I pretended I was doing speaking gigs and I was doing all the stuff but I'd like be on my kitchen floor in a ball crying in the daytime and then at night I'd like put on a happy face and put on my suit and go deliver a keynote pretending nothing was wrong I laid in wow. bed for five days once. I didn't get out of bed. I didn't shower. I didn't eat. I didn't do anything. And my mom phoned me and she was like, have you like left your house today? Cause I haven't, or, or this week, I haven't heard from you. I'm like, her, her no. mom, her mom radar is going off. Oh my God. Mom radar. Right. She had <clears> a feeling. And so she's like, I'm coming over. So she came over. She's like, Oh my God, Kyle, like what, what, what's going on? I was like, mom, I can't, I can't live my days like I don't know what to do I I have nowhere to be I've got no one who's holding me accountable to doing anything I've tried all these things on and nothing's fitting and I just don't know where I'm at and she's like okay <laughs> I think you need to see Hap so I went and saw Hap and Hap was like okay you know what you're in a free fall like you've let go of the trapeze you're doing the flips you don't know where you're gonna land you don't know what the next thing is we need to pick something we need to pick something it might not be the right thing. And that's where my perfectionistic tendency was coming in was I needed it to be like the next perfect thing. And he's like, you got to land somewhere and it's probably not going to be the right place, but you need to get your feet on the ground or your hands on that next trapeze. And so I decided to go back to school and I took, um, I studied broadcasting mm -hmm. at Mount Royal University and I studied, I didn't do the radio side. I did the TV side. And I also studied, um, business with a focus on entrepreneurship oh, Okay, ah. at Mount Royal. So I didn't do the full degrees. I just went and did some courses and they somewhere to be some somewhere sense of to purpose. be a place to be. And I got a sense of purpose and in the entrepreneurial, it was called the entrepreneurial experience was the course that I took. And it was so cool. What it did is it reminded me that I'm resourceful. I'm a hard worker and I'm going to get things done. And I don't think I, I never had confirmation of that really outside of my life of gymnastics. So I didn't believe it within myself. And that course just made me feel like I've got hustle. Like I can do this. I can make things work. And that started the growth and, and belief in myself started to happen. At that time also, Tyler, I wasn't, I wasn't exercising really. I was doing yoga when I could get myself there. <laughs> right. Um, 
but I didn't know how to exercise. I'd like go and run the stairs of my condo building. Like who does that? That's not fun. <laughs> That's not so <laughs> right. It's so back. Then, it's back to fitness is training and training is punishment and punishment is pain. Exactly. And like that mindset. Exactly. <laughs> and I had no goal. There was no reason or purpose for me to do it. So I decided to sign up for some running races because it's, I ran 25 meters towards a stationary object and flipped over it. So I was like, okay, well I'm going to do a 5k, did a 5k. I'm going to do a 10k, did a 10k. I'm going to do a half marathon, did a half marathon. I'm going to do a full marathon. So I started training and I started running with people and I, I started feeling like I was a part of something. Well, rebuilding again. your community again as exactly, well. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And like, I didn't have my teammates and I didn't have my coach and they were my family and they were there, but I wasn't seeing them every day. So you start to grow apart. Um, I also felt like I was in the blender and I got spit out, right? It's like, what can you do for me now? And then it's done. And yeah, so that, that was the transition. It was very tough. I decided to open a gymnastics center in 2012. After I went to the Olympics, I broadcasted for CTV there. And I got home and I was like, you know what? I've been trying to do all these things that are non-gymnastic related. And I gymnastics is me. This is what makes me happy. This brings me joy. When my gymnastic magazine would come as a little boy, I would rip it open and f- just tear through it. I'd read every word. And that that to me is where... That's my existence. That's my fulfillment. Like gymnastics gives me joy. So I decided I'm going to give that joy to other people. And when I had that thought, it all came together. I I dived off the edge of that diving board. I had been standing on it for a while, like thinking about it. But I was like, I'm (laughs) going. Those days learning to dive as a kid, standing there looking at the water. Exactly. But that's what it (laughs) was. Psyching yourself out. So I decided to make that commitment. And the second I did... I made a call to Crystal, who's my program director at the gym. She had been a longtime friend. I said, hey, I'm going to open a gym. I want you to be my program director. Are you open to that? And she's like, hell yeah, let's do it. Uh, and so Momentum immediately starting to build. Am- immediately. It's like even with the, my book here, I put out a post like, I've been working on this book, da 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 because I went to Vancouver for a writing retreat. And so I told people, I'm accountable to it now. I got to get it done. So that in life yes, is how a great you strategy. Right? It is. Got to get it done. So I... I phoned Crystal, she said yes, and then from there, the pieces just started coming together, and the business plan started to grow, investors started to come, found the business space, found, and, and it's just all, it was so much work, and it was intense, it was just like training, I was going 16 hours a day, full bore, but I felt a huge sense of purpose, and a huge reason why. And accountability back in your life, a people to be accountable to, a team, like everything that, and it's interesting how you had to kind of almost go away from gymnastics to then come back to it, but on your own terms. Exactly. Or on a new set, on a new set. It was always on your own terms, but on a new set of terms. Yeah, I've talked to professional athletes before, and whether you know NHL or different. And when it's done, it's just they feel spit out. I've heard that from so many people, and I think from the outside, it's easy to look in and go, "Oh, well, you're, you're an Olympic level athlete. You're just going to kill it. Your you're you're going to kill it at whatever that you do." Mm-hmm. But so much time has been focused, and I think, and like you said, a lot of your world was kind of preordained and organized by someone else. Be here, do this, train this way, do that. And then all of a sudden now, here, here, take the wheel. See ya. <laughs> I'm, I'm stepping out the other side of the car. Right? I remember checking my email a lot. And I'm like, just waiting, waiting for an opportunity, you know, for the next speaking gig, waiting for a broadcasting thing, waiting for someone to ask me to host an event, waiting for some, for me to go to this thing or that thing or go to a gymnastics club and do a clinic. Like I was just literally living not reactively. I was waiting for things to come to me. I wasn't building anything and I didn't know how to build the next thing. I didn't know what that looked like. And without the vision, I think it's so challenging. But when I decided to open the gymnastics gym, that's when it all clicked for me. 
The vision became very, very clear. I had the light at the end of the tunnel. Just like when you write the last sentence of your book, it's there. And so you build towards it. But that transition for, it's not as challenging for everybody. Some people do move forward quite easily. But for the majority of people that I've talked to who are in high level sport, you define yourself based on that. I always, I I equate it to the airplane talk. Okay. So I would ride on a lot of airplanes and I'd sit Mm. beside people and they'd be like, oh, what do you do? And I used to say, oh, I'm a gymnast, da, 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 da. And they're like, oh my God, that's so cool. And you've got this cool story to tell people. And then for about five years, people would say, what do you do? And I'd say, I was a gymnast. I was this, I was that. And now I come back to the conversation of, I own a gymnastics center and it feels so right. So there was a five-year period where I didn't have my elevator talk. I didn't have my airplane talk. I didn't know how to define myself in this world. And we, we, it's, we do so much of our definition by what we do, who we are, where we, like, it's often external and they line up and when they become misaligned like that, that is a challenging when, you know, when you're not aligned with how you want to see yourself or the way you've seen yourself for the majority of your life, I think that's really challenging. And a lot of people, I think, you know, it's a good topic for Calgary right now. A lot of people in transition, maybe out of work, job, you know the need or the, or, or the, the drive to change careers and like, Oh, just change careers, just pivot, do something else, you know, retool yourself. It's so easy to f- say it flippantly <laughs> and just say it. And I've talked to a lot of people that are like, well, I've been out of work for two years and I don't know what to do. And kind of just waiting for the same pattern to reemerge again versus going, I need to make a change. Really easy to say often very, very challenging to do. And even more challenging when you have a family and you've got a home and you've got like a support system that's relying on you. <laughs> yes. That's, that's tough to make that transition and that shift. But I, I am always so, um, I'm always so inspired by the people that like do, do make that shift and that transition into something totally different and totally new. And they're like, I really liked that. I wanted to learn digital marketing or whatever it was. Like awesome. And that apply themselves and take the courses and, and start at the bottom. I think that's the thing is I wasn't willing to start at the bottom of something. I wanted uh-huh, to like yes. jump into a role at TSN and like sit there and, you know, be a talking head and like, don't you know I, who I am? Don't you don't know? You know I was who, I'm, I'm an Olympic champion. But like, <laughs> no, I, I, I now think back and I'm like, I should have gotten a job at Starbucks. I seriously should have gone and worked at Starbucks to learn customer experience. I should have learned what it feels like to, you know, be in that kind of a role I didn't have the courage to do that. And an ego part of me was like, no, you can't start there. But like, man, you got to build from the bottom and the, you got to see from that. That's what school taught me was that I could rise to the top of my class. I had that skill set that mm-hmm. was innately in me and whatever I do, I'm going to try to be excellent at it. That's something that I... Excellent versus perfect. See how yeah, I did yeah, that? Yeah, no, no, that was... I'm, Already I'm feeling, I felt warm and fuzzy. I said, could have went, you know, we, we have to burn. Yeah, no. Right? It, when I watched your TED talk, it was so much of resonated and to hear you talk about it today firsthand and, and you know, being on such a, such an adventurous journey mm-hmm. and having that little, you know, I, cho- I grew up with the Flintstones was popular and like the good Fred Flintstone and the bad Fred Flintstone. That's yeah. what I picture on this. Like, that's kind of right. what I picture when I look over and that Seriously. Tyler being like, come on, it's not good enough and not good enough. And you're like, oh. Man, I see that, but you just kind of knocked him off a little bit when you said that. <laughs> and and I think that's what the whole exercise is, is identifying the voice and realizing that it's not real. It's actually just like this little, we have lots of different saboteurs that live within us. And if you give them a voice, if you give them a face, you give them an outfit, whatever they're wearing, <laughs> then you can see them and you're like, hey, I know you, shut up. And you can flip yeah, them I've, off, I've, Yeah, right? you're not, not going to get me. Right. So... 
in closing, uh, th- thank you so much for your honesty, and I really appreciate getting getting people on the show that'll really just talk about real stuff. Thanks for don't, having don't me. Don't shellack it. <laughs> Any advice for anyone, uh, just broad go- going through a life transition? What, what would you What would you say to them as kind of a starting? Maybe they're at that dark point. Maybe they've been in bed for five days. You know, I say that with a smile because it's the way Hollywood portrays it as well. But it's a it's a real depression's a real thing. And what what advice would you give and put out there to the world? Well, a couple things. First is ask for help. Because there's a lot of great support systems out there. Um, I had to work through it with support with my sports psychologist. I was I was never medicated for my depression. Mm-hmm. But I had to do a lot of journaling. I had to do a lot of meditation. And I, I had to do a lot of um, positive self-talk. Those were the things that helped get me through it. But I couldn't do that on my own. I needed someone else to help me structure that. Another thing I would say is start start somewhere like it's not it it won't be the perfect place but nothing is permanent so wherever you start it's going to be a jumping off point get your feet on the ground start connecting with people use that network but but go in and actually do something just don't sit there and think about it but go and be somewhere and and do something because that's going to give you the confidence to start moving forward to that next thing Sitting there in your stewing in your own sense of self deprecation and and looking in the mirror and not liking yourself that doesn't get you anywhere. But going out there and getting your feet somewhere on the ground, being a part of something, whether it's a volunteer gig, whether it's um, doing an internship, internship, or reaching out to a friend that's doing something that you kind of admire, say, "Hey, can I shadow you for a day?" Going out and being a part of something, being a part of the action, makes you feel like, um, you know, life does have possibilities. And also, can- when you submit, your, when you when you immerse yourself in those experiences, sometimes you forget about the negative self talk. You forget to do it. You do. Oh, jeez, I haven't remembered to beat myself up for an hour. That's a good thing. And then maybe it's two hours, and maybe it's three. I had a friend who told me to every day get up and at least go to a coffee shop and read the paper. So that you could see that the world had bigger problems than what was on, going on with you. We that is solid advice. On that note, I'm gonna I'm gonna close there. Kyle, thank you so much for taking the time to come in. It was a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure.